Hey everybody and welcome to the latest installment of Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today we are talking PR. Personally, I've had an absolute love-hate relationship with PR. When the love is good, it's golden, but when it's hateful, oh my God. For those of you who want to find out more about PR, boy, do I have the guest for you, Sarah Sitchi, the PR queen as we run through all the topics relating to public relations, running your own agency uh, and everything between, including the cannabis industry. How to get PR, where to turn and how to use it. Get ready to have your mind blown and learn how to get your in the media, sit down, buckle up, grab yourself a pad and a pen, and take some notes. Get ready for this one. Listen up. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Unstoppable Sarah Chichi. Is that right? It's Sitchi. Sitchi. Damn, damn, I should have asked. That's the only question I didn't ask. <laughs> Thank you for having you. me. Thank you for coming in. Like, I was super excited when I got the brief for this. I was like, wow. You know, here is a lady that uh, has done a lot of things, can add a lot of value to our audience, but also the, I think that we can have some pretty cool conversations. So for perhaps people who don't know um, the the rundown of uh, Sarah, Sarah Sitchi. 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 That's quite – did you make that up? Because like, I know you're in <laughs> PR. Actually, yeah, just putting a sweet – it actually means uh, quiet in Polish. I'm oh, Polish. Wow. Are you Polish? It, yes. Right. Um, and it's pronounced Chihi, but we – Changed it to Sitchi. Yeah, for right. Western purposes. So um, you are the PR queen, but for those of you who don't know anything about you, like give us the 15 second overview of, of who Sarah. Okay. So I um, have been living in Sydney for 10 years now from Melbourne. Um, I loved PR. I love writing right from the start. So decided that media was definitely my choice and my avenue and my career, um, you know, to to um to pursue um from a really great family in Melbourne um with two sisters mum and dad two twin nephews and and um arrived here 10 years ago with nothing but a suitcase and a dream and here I am today <laughs> so you um you specialize in PR PR is your gig correct um how did that come to pass in uni I was always I was always fascinated about stories and people's stories and I always have been I can sit and listen to someone for hours and I loved writing and um, and then naturally just found my way into public relations, which took a year actually to study to get into. Back then there were only 30 people who were allowed into RMIT uni. That was many, many moons ago. Right. And so before that I'd started off at Melbourne Uni doing a psych- psychology degree until I was accepted into RMIT um, in 1990-something. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm yeah. feeling quite at home here now, yeah, so yeah, don't, don't, yeah. don't be embarrassed. You're making me feel better at least. So you started off in psychology. Yes, did you, I did. Did you complete the degree? Absolutely not. No, not no. for you? I thought I'd be sitting there talking feelings <laughs> and then suddenly stats, statistics. statistics, and then I was like, game changer, I'm yeah. out of here. But I did also, I just used that year just to um, study to get into the PR, yeah. into this PR degree, which was, was fierce to get into. There are about 150 people going for this exam for 30 spots, so I went for wow. the first round um, and then took that year to really study and apply myself to, to getting into um, the lecture or, or to the course. So for people who perhaps maybe don't really understand what PR is, why don't you give us the, 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 the actual definition in your terms of yeah. what is PR? Well, PR has definitely changed. It's about communication. It's about changing the way um, that people think or they look at your brand. It's, it's about changing... Um, or building brand awareness and building a story and narrative, a deeper dialogue about a particular product or a brand so people can um, inquire about it and use it and, and enjoy your product and get to know you. Because one of the things I've seen is most people don't really understand what PR is, especially in a small business space. Like in the yeah. mid-sized to large corporations, they tend to have a, a pretty good understanding on public relations, the importance of communications. 
But what I've observed with a lot of small businesses is they don't really understand the role that it plays. Because um, you've got, obviously, you've got social media, you've got direct marketing media, you've got sales media. But PR is actually, it, it is a little bit different, isn't it? I think PR in this day and age is about integrated communication. So yep. you need you need PR, you need social media, you need event activation, you need influencer marketing. It's all about, it's all coming together to yep. be able to persuade people's decision-making process and, the, and, and influence their product, their power to purchase. So how do you strategically, like when you look at a brand, because are there any brands you've worked with that people would probably be quite familiar? Because I know you've done quite a yeah. lot of stuff. Um, if we take some of my oldest clients, Oliella Insi Interiors. Yep. Um, they've been with me for the longest period of time okay. and um, amazing companies, amazing women, amazing entrepreneurs who are leading these two brands. Um, and really when you have a look at how you create a strategy, it's about looking at the brand. It's about looking at their brand narrative. It doesn't need to be radical. And I say to my clients, you don't need to be ridiculous and radical to get to get media attention. You just need to have a look at your brand and look at the story and create really compelling newsworthy stories that will capture the attention of journalists. So how do you do that? Everyone has a story. Okay. But I'm curious to know, is PR something that anyone can do or do you need an agency to do it? If I always say to clients who ask me that question, mm -hmm. Don't launch until you have a budget for PR. What's the point of having beautiful mm. product and a whole collection in your warehouse when no one can see it, when no one can feel it, when no one can be exposed to it? And um, I also say, you know, when you're sick, you see a doctor. When you need a hair mm. a haircut, you see a hairdresser. So now this is your product. This is what you've dreamt about. This is what you've invested in. And now you're relying on people to organically come to you and find you. I think you're really missing the last step in a really important process. And it's about influencing people or or placing your product into the hands of those people who are going to talk about your product positively. So, yes, I think everyone should invest in a PR agent. <laughs> said, said like a PR agent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's have a look at it from the strategic perspective because I've always been really curious about PR because I've had a love-hate, and I'll be totally honest with you. You can be as honest as you like. I had a love-hate relationship with PR for as long as I can remember. Um, and again, it always comes down to, and I guess you could say the same thing. I've had a love hate relationship with the medical community as well, because there's nothing like sitting in front of a good doctor who knows what they're talking about in a specialist field. But PR for me, I've discovered is one of those areas where it's sometimes like you don't know what you're getting yourself into in most cases until, you know, until you're six until months paid, deep yeah. and you've paid out, you know, quite a large sum of money. And then you're working out that, you know, you're actually not getting any traction. So when you are looking to get PR, first, I suppose the first question is at what point should a business decide whether or not they're ready for PR? When they raise their ABN. When they raise their ABN. Yeah. But also you, you mentioned before, the moment you've got a budget for it, you should consider doing it. Well, I think, I think that the moment that – yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, And you should, be, you should be raising your ABN and working towards a budget because ideally what you want to be doing is creating stories as soon as you launch the product. Right. Because if you don't, then you're at the mercy of competitors – seeing your product out there organically and yep. then copycat, you know, being copycat. You want to drive conversation. You want to be a thought leader within that space. You want to be an entrepreneur within that space as well. The reason why you might not be getting traction with your post, your past PR companies is A, it's not the right PR company for you. Yep. Um, B, they're probably not specialised, which is something I'm very... I'm, I'm very committed to and being a specialist PR agent for particular areas within um, within the industry. And um, they're not working hard enough. I, but that's in terms of any product, 
any entrepreneur should have a story and you should have traction within the media. So what do you say to a business that's like, well, you know, I'd really love to do PR, but I'm flat out having a Facebook ads marketing budget. Uh, because one of the things when I look at my earlier days, which was more of a hate relationship with PR, and I have a much, much greater love and respect for it now. In the earlier days, I was like, well, you know, why would I spend, you know, five or 10 grand on, on getting articles when I can spend five or 10 grand on direct response? Mm. Like, what do you say to someone who's like, well, I can spend an, a, a sum of money to get some newsworthy and get, to get some narrative out there, or I can spend money on direct response. How do you balance that conversation out in a way to make them understand the importance of both? Sure. In terms of a product and a client, your brand narrative is your currency. Mm. That's what will separate you from any other competitor within your space. So, for example, um, a client has a basket company and Kmart has a basket company, you know, baskets. But people are buying into that particular company who has a brand story, a brand narrative. They they have seen um, that particular entrepreneur with their family. We're buying into the person who's actually making the product. So when we have a look at editorial, we, we actually want to know what entrepreneurs are eating for breakfast, a day on a plate, Kate with, you know, date with Kate Waterhouse. And people go, why do they want to see me eating, you, you know, what I'm having for breakfast? Did you, did you ever see my day in the life with Kerwin Ryan and Umbrella? Oh, no. Oh, go, to the they... com- go to the comments. It okay. is gold. Because uh, this was one of my <laughs> – so I did some PR a couple of years ago and I launched the social experiment uh, and they came back and said, oh, Mumbrella want to do a piece on you, a day in the life of Kerwin Rain. I was like, yeah. okay, right. So my day starts at 4.30 a.m. And so I did yeah. this big whole piece on you know, my life and everything else. And oh, my God, everyone thought I was David Brent. <laughs> Because I, I, I'm, I, like, I, I'd like to think pace. I'm a funny guy, yeah. but it was written with a little bit of, you know, irony cheek. and cheek and satire in mind. And they weren't oh, ready for I it. got smashed. Oh, I got absolutely, wow. I thought This it was is why you need a great PR agent to be able to shape your messages. So, so, in, so just going no, back go. there to that in terms of um, why people want to actually see what entrepreneurs are having for breakfast yeah. and dinner and date with Kate's and and um, and all the rest of it is because they want to know that the entrepreneur or the person behind the product who are building these brands, building these products, are sitting down during the week and having avocado and eggs without the bread because that's what an entrepreneur does. It fuels their body. They also want to see on the weekend that they're having pancakes and Cocoa Pops with their kids because that's what makes them approachable. So we actually are interested in pe- seeing people's successes and people's stories. And without that, if you're going to invest all your money in you know, um, Facebook or Instagram sponsored posts, then that's tissue paper thinking. We want a deeper dialogue about your brand. We want to know who you are, what you do, what you get up to. And, you know, artisans creating these baskets in India and bringing the community together, what a beautiful story. You cannot replicate that in an ad. So how do, how has social media changed the world of PR? Completely changed the landscape. Is it almost like it's given people the opportunity to control their own narrative? Yes, absolutely. Um, it has added to it. Everyone thinks, you know, PR is out, you know, social media is taking over. It's absolutely not. I think they complement each other nicely. Never before has social media given the retailer and the brand so much direct exposure to the consumer. So it's 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 quick. People can change the direction of their brand very instantaneously. It's also offering a community of like-minded people to come together and talk about a particular product or about a particular um, movement. Um, and again, it's integrated. So I think you should always have PR from an editorial perspective and social media sweetening that process. So I want to see my clients in AFR, BOW, 
ad news power retail talking about the business of it. Of yep. the, because why? Investors are looking and reading those publications. They're not necessarily on Instagram having a look at flat lays and who's liked who and comments of that. Yes, that will be a sweetener. But if you want, if they want to invest in a company, the business people are reading the serious business press. So I start a campaign looking at a client and going, okay, let's define success. Where do you want to be? And how am I going to map out a way to get you to those particular publications? And then added to that is the integrated social media campaign, which just, you know, appeals to the appeals to the Gen Ys and the Gen Zs who are very visual in terms of their purchasing, you know, how they purchase. What do you say to people who say, well, yeah, look, you could put me in an article in BRW or in the Financial Review or another magazine. But how do I know who exactly is going to see it? The fact that you're in those articles, it means that the journalists, the editors are seeing you. So you need to be constantly in there. And and if the BRW, BNT and Ad News and, and AFR, you get exposure to business people. That's, yeah. that's the demographic of who reads. Can I tell you where I see a huge opportunity right now in the PR space? Yes. Because everyone looks at PR as separate to social media and I think there's never been a greater opportunity for PR than there is with social media, especially when you look at the ad platforms. And I'll tell you why. Because most people, when they use the ad platforms, they're doing direct response, they're doing direct sale. Okay? And it's not a direct response or direct sell. It's not a direct marketing media. Social media is a narrative media. It's a social media. It's a relationship yes. media. And where we have our greatest success is where we actually find our greatest narratives and we advertise our narratives. So we actually don't – like 99% of our advertising isn't direct marketing. It's not direct response. We're actually advertising content that is of a narrative base because you probably heard of this concept called the mere exposure effect. I'm not sure. No. Tell okay, me. You're going to fucking love this. I'm going to love trust it. Me, this will be a part of every single pitch you use moving forward. So the mere exposure effect is a psychological phenomena whereby people tend to develop a preference for things because they become familiar with them. In social psychology, they refer to it as the familiarity principle. Yeah. And what we understand from a commercial perspective, in 2005, the average punter needed to be exposed to a business or a brand or a product or service visually exposed or auditorily, but some form of exposure, about 5.8 times. Mm -hmm. In 2012, it was 12.4 times. And they reckon by 2020 that it's going to be as many as 19 to 20 exposures that are required. But the challenge is, is how do you get that many exposures without pissing people off? Because if you're using direct response or direct marketing, Constantly they're not Constantly hitting them it. with the same message. Because in 1992, the average consumer was exposed to like 3,000 commercial messages. Now it's like, you know, yeah. 25, 30,000 plus. And so where I see the, the greatest opportunity is in the integration of PR and social, and social media, media because of the targeting potential. You know, the thing, BRW is great. Don't get me wrong. I've had plenty of articles in, in, in BRW and the only times I've ever made money from the AFR or BRW articles is when an exact investor on that day yes. before or after that meeting happened to see that article and it was fucking there timing. There you go. And it's worked and it's made me a lot of money. But where I've seen enormous traction, enormous tra tread is the ability to use PR in a targeted fashion on, fashion on social media to put it in front of the demographics, the psychodemographic, the geodemographics that are most likely to be influenced by that perspective to get that exposure to a point where then they see a direct response or they see direct marketing and they're ready to activate. Good idea. Do you like it? Yeah, let's do it. Well, <laughs>
<laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> we're already doing it. I just, as I said, I just think when I look at the PR world, and I, and by the way, this isn't a PR thing, and this isn't a, an agency thing. I just think that there's so much res- at a PR level, at an agency level, there's a, still a I see. There's so much to learn. There's so much to learn, but there's so much fucking resistance. Yeah, they see it as a threat when it's like, dude, just bring it together. Exactly. And it's in the innovative. You know, it's very young. Where it's we're at the infancy stages of social media. You know, so everyone's learning, and we're trying to learn together. And there is resistance, and we're yeah. trying to navigate our way around it together. But I do know the importance of it. I know that we need yeah. to integrate from social media, earned media and um, purchase media. So how do you develop a narrative? Like when you're looking at a brand and you're looking to take a piece, you know, to market in a range of different publications, mm-hmm. where do you start when you're looking at the narrative for PR? Their story. And it simply comes down to that. So, so the I, origin story. Yeah, I peel it apart and I just literally ask a few questions. Why have you done this? Why is it important to you? Um, what's the future of this? And when you start talking to someone, they release, they open up, they talk to you about um, their childhood and where they came from. And this is the reason why they've created this particular product. And then um, from that, you really pull out the integrity of the brand. You know, people don't purchase, again, a, a a product because it's pretty nine out of 10 times. They purchase it because there is a story behind it. And my job is to shape that story and to bring it to life. So when you do a campaign, you pull out the narrative, you peel it apart, you look at the origin story. Then from a marketing perspective, how do you then roll that out? Like, is it a matter of, okay, this is the narrative. We're only going to go after identify a a couple of different publications and and networks and we'll just go with those. Or is it like, okay, we're going to work it. We're going to look at this based on a, a 12 month goal. We're going to look at this and we're not just going to try and get, you know, because again, pieces. Yeah. this is my hate relationship. Let's just try and get some articles. It's like, well, no, what's the fuck? How do yeah. you build a greater strategy? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and also on that note, clients are, clients resist that, you know, 12 month um, is it the commitment, commitment. Yeah. Absolutely. They want to see short wins within four months to six months and we can do that. Um, will an article or an editorial piece convert directly to sales in the first go? No. You know, so people say to me, oh, God, I'm really nervous to start a campaign because it's only me and someone else and I need to, you know, staff it and what happens if I can't deal with the demand? The reality is is that you're at the start of building brand awareness. This brand awareness you'll need for four months to 12 months, you know. In terms of our strategy, um, it's about selecting publications that, you know, we're very strategic in terms of selecting the 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 publications that our client needs to be. It's not a scattergun approach. Everything that goes out from the agency needs to be absolutely tailored, tailored to the particular publication. Um, You know, we write to editors going, we feel that this particular product would be suitable in that particular, you know, piece of the publication. So um, we're very precise. Speaking of death threats. Yeah. (laughs) Were we? Um, No, we did earlier (laughs) We did, we did. But... um, (laughs) One of the things that I've observed with PR, and I don't mean this in a negative way because I think this is where the real opportunity is, but journalists, there's, there's a few breeds of journalists. There's, there's the investigative hardcore journalists that love to, you know, create and originate all of their own unique content that they've derived and investigated themselves. And then you've got this other bunch of fat Labradors <laughs> that are pretty fucking lazy. Oh, that's a coming. <laughs> I said death threats. I have no comment to that. I don't know what okay. you're reading. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean about no that. No idea. Okay. So there's this other class of, of, of journalists who perhaps are a little bit more strategic. They're like, well, I could do all the heavy lifting mm-hmm. or alternatively, I could just allow people to send me in content and copy that I can perhaps massage and, you know, 
put into the publications that I'm working on. And I've discovered there's actually quite a lot of journalists that are like that, where they're like, <laughs> oh, you know what? I like it when people help me write stories by providing, you know, narratives and content that I can use. Is that is that essentially where the real opportunity is, is in providing content so that some of these journalists don't have to do it themselves? Oh. I can't. Sp- <laughs> oh, I can't speak told on their you behalf. Be asked some fucking tough uh, yeah, question. I can't speak on their behalf. Yeah. I know that um, historically there was such, um, you know, the relationship between a journalist and PR was it wasn't a warm one. You know, yeah. we we hated each other. We, we didn't hate each other. Now it's about respecting each other. Mm. Or I, I train, you know, my team to create content that's accurate, that's written in a way that the journalists um, will be influenced yep. or perhaps lift and adapt to suit their audience. So what we provide is absolutely accurate information. Those journalists, and, and again, I can't speak on their behalf and I don't know who they are, who are literally lifting things off the press release without doing um, the research, I... Look, I think it's fair to say those are probably very few and far between even with my experience. But what I have done, and I've tried to done it in actually a humorous way and I hope I haven't fucking put a target on my back doing yeah. so is that the real opportunity is in creating leverage for journalists to be able to provide them content to publish so that they can actually increase their production rate. Exactly. We provide them with accurate information so they don't have to second guess us, you know, and that's why everyone goes, is PR about, you know, cocktails and, and, you know, air kisses and all the rest of it. No, journalists want to have a credible um, relationship with the PR, knowing Mm. that they can rely on them, knowing that they can pick up the phone and say, Sarah, I need some information on this particular topic. Can you research and and provide it to me? So we work together. We have a strong relationship together and that's what a relationship with journalists is all about. And that's where, to me, the real value in PR is. Exactly. The real value in PR is finding an agent who actually has good connections, who has a Rolodex of solid relationships in the range of publications in the industries that, you know, Absolutely. are a match for that business. And you can't make them overnight, no. these relations. You know, we have we kind of, I look at who's in the media now and we went to RMIT together and then they went into journalism. So we've kind of grown up with each other um, within this media space and, and again, completely and respect each other. PR is quite a noisy space from a journalist perspective as well because you yes. could have a journalist position in, you know, in property or in business, in finance or in, you know, in well-being. And they're not getting what I'm going to assume from what I've seen. They're not getting one or two press releases emailed to them every day. They're getting in some cases. They're getting smashed. Smashed. And so the ones they're going to look at, the priority, where the priority comes in is to the relationships that they know is going to be, it's going to be trusted. It's going to be accurate. That's exactly right. They are getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of emails every day, which are incorrect press releases, which are not written um, for them, which which are not targeted, which is a waste of their time. And then they get receive phone calls from junior AEs going, did you get my press release. I mean, and that, you know, this is the response. This is um, widely known. Yeah. So yes, to have a very strategic media list and very strategic strategy of who you're going to and why you're going there is incredibly important for the longevity of your your career, essentially. Okay. So your journey into PR, we, we talked about this off um, off podcast, but we, we did record it, but we'll, we'll, I'll ask you again. The way that you actually got into PR is actually quite an interesting interesting story. Like the way you yes. opened your own shop, I should yes. say. Completely serendipitous. Very serendipitous. You were working for a shop in, um, in some suburb of Sydney. Yes. We won't mention where. Um, and yeah, you were basically, do you mind me t- kind of sharing the story? Yeah, of course. Okay. So you were, you were basically earning about, you know, 55 grand a year, which mm-hmm. in, in Sydney is, you know, it's at 33, at 33, <laughs> which was only two years ago. Oh. <laughs> um, and you, you went and asked for a pay rise. What happened? I 
was working at an agency mm-hmm. and I did ask for a pay rise, just $5,000 more. And um, she declined just based on her bottom line, which I completely understand. I completely respect. I used to look at her though, in the same breath, I used to look at her and absolutely admire her and knew that I could do what she was doing. I used to watch and sit back and learn and took everything in. She was very good at relationships. She was very good at business acquisition. She was very good at managing her team and her culture. So that was the first mentor without her actually knowing. Um, So thank you. Um, uh, Thank you, Miss X. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew that I wanted to do what she did. Yeah, right. So when she declined, um, I was my $5,000 pay rise and I had a mortgage and 33 and I just didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go back to Melbourne. I didn't want to face mum and dad and say that I failed, you know, Um, and I wanted to stay in Sydney and I wanted to make it work. So I placed my an ad on Mumbrella, which I probably think is still there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit scared to have a look actually. And one of the biggest exhibition companies in Australia approached me and asked me to freelance. And the retainer was for 55 grand. Bizarrely, it was bizarre um, for the whole year. And I was so... Um, like I was just so innocent, but I was fiercely determined. I didn't know anything about tax. And so I went to her and I said, look, you know, last opportunity, can I have a pay rise? She said, no. And so I just decided to back myself and and um, took a, you know, just jumped off the ledge. And, and from there, one client came, the next client came, and then suddenly I had an agency, four girls, two companies, and, you know, a really amazing business, which is anchored in Homewares Kids and e-commerce, which is the genesis of um, that particular retainer, which I carried for four years. Yeah, wow. Which was amazing. That's incredible. So that was the start. But um, yeah, that was a hard time of my life. But something told me this was the right thing to do. I had I had $70 in the bank and I asked my I asked my accountant then, my accountant, thank you very much, to raise an ABN for Piccolo PR and he spelt it wrong. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> had one job, pal. Just... One job. And bless it. So I had to wait another three weeks to save that money up again, you know, and then your laptop breaks down and your mouse pad, you know, you lose your, you lose your mouse. So, um, but I knew that this was definitely the direction that I wanted to go and I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell my family. I, I, I pretended that I was still at the job that I was at and I had, everything was fantastic and, and meanwhile, um, I was working in my, you know, flat in Malara. But loving it, loving it. And I and I treated it from day one like an agency where I'd get up at 4 a.m. in the morning, go for a run, which I still do now, um, sit at the desk at 6 um, a.m., have half an hour for lunch and then finish at 6 and then and then off I'd go to my social, you know, whatever I'm doing socially. Your air kisses. Yeah, oh, no, <laughs> I don't have any. I've never done that. Um, but so I really treated it like it was an agency right from the start. Right. I thought... Every day my motto was just be better than the day you were yesterday. Oh, I love that. Just be better in everything that you do just in terms of better. business, in terms of being a friend, in terms of being a partner, whatever that may do, you know, whatever that may be. And and stars should align somewhere down the line and they did. And so how long ago was that? That was four years ago. Four years ago. Seven, yes, four years ago. Okay. And so you're cracking on now. You've now not only got Piccolo PR, but you've also just lo- launched Shook. Shook Communications. Shook Communications as well. Yes. So Shook is very different to Piccolo PR. I'm, very, I'm a big believer in specialization. So as yeah. I said before, Piccolo is anchored within kids, homewares and, and people. Yep. Shook, I need to diversify. I've had a lot of through word of mouth referrals um, locally and abroad. Um 
within e-commerce tech sector property and also the cannabis space. So I'm representing a few, Shalkara, um, a few publicly listed companies um, within the cannabis sector and decided yeah, right. to create a different or launch a different company to be able to represent that market. Yep. You know, having Piccolo PR representing cannabis does not align with the Kids and, kids and cannabis. Kids and cannabis. Doesn't really mix. The brand integrity is just, you know, um, identity crisis. So Shook Communications is um, the next riding the green I wave. I cannot tell you how impressed I am that you have taken this on. Thank you. Um, because it is still in that infancy stage. It still yeah. is in that, there's still a lot of stigma around cannabis, you know, around the, not just the medical side, but also the recreational side and the agendas that are on, on, on the line here. You seem like a pretty kind of straight-laced kind of lady from what I can tell. Am, am I correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you colour within the lines for the most part. Um, what was it that made see, you... Get- I, see, I would think I colour outside of the lines. That's what makes me creative. But right. I am very disciplined. Yes. I don't smoke. Yeah. As I said to you before off air, am yeah. I allowed to say this? Yeah, of course. Okay. I Last time I had marijuana was in 1999 at yeah. schoolies in Byron Bay, first and last, last time. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever do it again. It's not for me. But I love the business behind cannabis. Right. I love the fact... What is it about the business? Is it the medicinal business or is it the recreational opportunity? Like, what, I'm what not is- even... I'm not even looking at either or. I'm yeah. looking at this being a very innovative market. Um, innovative market. It's bringing together young entrepreneurs and scientists. Um, you know, on the 17th of October, it was legalised in Canada, followed by the UK, um, LA. It's legalised from a state level. And a sp- honestly, now when I walk down Venice Beach, I I, I feel like I'm in Amsterdam with the beach. I know it is Get, everywhere. Getting high. Yeah. Um, and now Australian governments are talking closely to Canadian governments about the risk and the benefits of legalising cannabis. So we, Shook Communications is riding that green wave. We're at the front line, the forefront of it, loving having these discussions and um, being approached by international clients to represent them. Australia is a little bit slow. Some in some categories, conservative, conservative. Okay, that's you're so fucking, you're such a PR agent. <laughs> Australia is quite slow in the uptake of um, you know certain aspects of innovation. You know, it has taken what seems like um, decades. It hasn't been, but it seems like it's taken a very long and drawn out process, even to get to the point where you know we've got that medical legalization. Medical legalization was passed, but then no one could actually get access yes. to anything. You know, it's been there's been a lot of focus on farm pharmaceutical companies trying to control you know, distribution of, of synthesized products. What what do you see changing in that space? Are you actually a part of the movement that is going to perhaps make this more of a... Um, uh, I'm not lobbying for it, if not, that's what you're asking. No, I'm just no, curious. No, no, no. Because it, it seems like there's, there's, a few, there's a few people yeah. at the table here. You've got the pharmaceutical companies that want to tie it up and make, and make it a, a, you know, a synthetic or a derivative or, a, you know, own that market. You've got the, you know, the far left medical community that want it to be a free-for-all where anyone can grow their own. And then you've got these people in the middle that are like, well, look, let's just make it freely available to the right yeah. people in the right way. And let's, look, let's, let's have a little bit of an intelligent approach. Where do you sit on that spectrum? I want it opened up. I want I want it to be accessible to everybody from medicinal and for recreational purposes because I see the health benefits of it. I see that if it's in, if it's in a controlled environment, mm. um, then there you know then that people will benefit from it. Not only in terms of um, 
from a lucrative perspective, but also health perspective as well and recreational perspective. But I think that our government is being incredibly conservative and they're following the federal procedure of what Canada Canada did, which was very responsible. Do you see it now now that it's passed in Canada at a medicinal and a recreational level? Do you see that there's a potential now for... Millions and billions of dollars. It's such a lucrative... (laughs) That wasn't where I was going to go, but that's interesting where you're headed. Sorry, sorry, the the reason why I interject that is is that, you know, these companies have gone from million-dollar companies to billion-dollar yeah. companies in just four months. Yes. Um, it's And and Canada can, continues to prepare for the rollout of that. LA is sh- shortly, you know, followed behind that and UK as well. So Australia is about, I think, three years away to five years away from, you know, can I say this, but, you know, I'm softening the legalization or but is that at the medicinal because again I, I look at it as two categories I would say medicinal medicinal yeah, level I would say medicinal because it's almost like it, it appears to be the responsible thing to do is to ro- roll it out and get you know a centralized distribution and uh, um, and uh, licensing and regulation at a medicinal level first to get some level of control exactly and taxation in place before they go recreational before we go which is what we saw in the US yes which is what we saw in Canada yeah I'm just curious now if there's going to be a level of acceleration because Australia it really has been dragging its heels. I, I again, I can only I can only um, guess yeah. where we're going, but I would again say three to five years. This will be, our laws will be relaxed. Yeah, and I can't wait. And not just be, and again, I say this as as quite a, a conservative because I was saying yeah. to you off cam off camera off air before. Um, like I'm very pro cannabis um, for the medicinal perspective. Like I've got I'm someone who's got brain injuries. I've used CBD yeah. oil not just for the treatment of my brain injuries. I've also used CBD oil to um, treat uh, melanoma as well. Yeah, right. Successfully treat melanoma. I've used it to treat arthritis and inflammation. Um, but I've also on the other side of that, you know, in my in my early years, I've, I've experienced addiction with cannabis as well. And people often talk about cannabis as a, a non-addictive drug. And I'm like, well, hang on, I've actually I've got experience that says otherwise. And so do you see that there is an important, uh, there is a requirement for us to have a level of composure around, well, we can't just make it a free-for-all. There has to be a level of... Absolutely. You know, I mean, we, it still needs to be, it, we still need to govern, you know, you don't go, you don't go and get um, codeine from the pharmacy and they don't give it out. You know, there's, there's a level of responsibility that the, gov- the government needs to have um, with distribution of this and with legalisation. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting when we talk about government responsibility and you look at alcohol as an example Mm. and the amount of um, deaths that it causes, not just motor vehicle deaths, but also deaths that uh, cause as a result of, you know, alcohol abuse. But it seems as if alcohol is off limits when it comes to governance, apart from what's already in place, which is you've got to be at least 18 and over. In order to, you know, there's no, there's no restrictions based on mental health. There's no restrictions based on, you know, essentially yeah, as long as you've got an ID, right. you can get access to That's it. That's exactly right. Yet when you look at this other substance that is cannabis, you know, we have all these, there's not one single recorded death in history uh, from anyone ingesting cannabis in any way, shape or form. You know, surely we can probably point to, you know, motor vehicle accidents and everything else. But, but in terms of the pure substance itself. Exactly. Or the cannabinoid, there's no No, there's, there's absolutely nothing there. I can't comment because I haven't done the research of that, but I no, take your word for it. But it's interesting. Like I find it really interesting, you know, uh, and I wonder whose agendas are actually being met here yeah. and at what point does the agenda swing and is, that a, is it a commercial agenda? Because, when again, when you look at the US, the amount of taxation that they're developing, billions of dollars now of, of tax that they're They're building schools, they're building hospitals, they're building freeways. Absolutely. Infrastructure. And it's all off the back of, of, of cannabis. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So there is a massive opportunity there. Massive market there. Okay. Um, what's so? What's oh, okay? Let's get a bit personal for a second. Yes. So you've but, built this incredible business. Yeah. Um, you've done it all while looking like you're um, sub thirty. <laughs> How have you? Because well, a lot of our audience, um, you know, they're they're business owners, they're entrepreneurial, they're performance people, but most of them are you know, trying to navigate relationships at the same time as trying to perform at a high level. How did you? How have you gone in that space? Are you asking me? What's the question? Is how it, do you manage relationships whilst because you're, yes. you're managing an agency? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I'm not hitting on yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> did I just flush there? And I'm like, how, I I like are you asking me if I'm in a relationship? Yeah, or, no, no, no. No, I was but like, maybe I am how now. How do I manage relationships? Well, I haven't. Was, last night, Valentine's Day was I was working. Um, in ter- yeah, look, in terms of um, being an entrepreneur, I'll start with the good stuff. Yes, that would Can be I start with Yeah, please. People so, want what's real, right? Like yeah. they want to know what's and real. I'll get, yeah. And I'll, managing relationships and business is not is not easy. It can be lonely. Yeah. You know, having a business can be absolutely lonely. It can be absolutely isolating because all you want to do um, when you get home from work is research and, well, maybe I'm just such a geek, but, you know, um, how you get to the next level. And on the weekends, you might not be able to go out to social occasions because you've got a deadline or you've got a press release to write or you want to develop something else in that not in your in another entrepreneurial space. So it, you can be a lonely existence, but mm. you know in your gut that this is, you absolutely don't mind giving um, those opportunities away or sacrificing going out because this is where you want to be. It excites you. It it brings you to life. It lights you up. And, you know, I always say to people, if you want to be an entrepreneur, and that, that term is used very loosely, mm. if you want to if you want to have a business, don't expect to have a work balance life because mm. you think about business the whole time, 24-7. If I'm not thinking about my clients and the strategy and their growth and I'm thinking about my agency and how to improve efficiencies and culture and and scale up and, um, you know, improve and not go bankrupt and all the rest of it. So it's all consuming and it's overwhelming at some sometimes, but that's the way, you know, I love it like that. I wouldn't want it any other way. Does it affect relationships along the way? Possibly. But if your priority is to make a success of something, then you have to put, you have to be committed to it. And do relationships, like I take it from what you've said, yeah. <laughs> you're single, <laughs> no kids. Have you got a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! I don't. You don't have a puppy. How about a cat? No. Goldfish. <laughs> All right, let's get her a goldfish. Let's go to a break. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Joking. I didn't think Joking. this would be the area that I'd get the most discomfort. But I am going to go there because I can sense some discomfort there. Oh, good. But do you ever think about? Because again, I had this happen to me at the end of last year. Like I've been lucky enough, like everyone else in who has built a successful business, I've sacrificed a lot. Mm. You know, it's probably fair to say that, you know, my, uh, my my marriage actually, one of the attributes to the failure of the marriage was possibly the fact that my, my ex-wife was getting a little bit of the scraps and she wasn't yeah. getting the, the best of me. There were many factors that were going into that and I'm not making this conversation about that. But what I do want to highlight is, to echo what you said, there is a lot of sacrifice that's required to build a successful business. But it's beautiful sacrifice. It is beautiful I mean, sacrifice in perspective. Yes. And I had a perspective shift at the end of last year because one of the areas that I've sacrificed for the last 20 years is near of socialization, you know, because my, my marriage ended I mean, almost two years ago. My whole – no, 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 it's fine. It's actually quite a beautiful thing. 
my whole focus for the last two years has really been on my business and my son. My son has been number one. Uh, he's an incredible little little critter. But what I, I kind of had this uh, perspective shift at the end of last year. I was like, I put my head up and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm putting my head up for the first time in almost 20 mm. years now. I've neglected my mates to such a level that they, you know, most of them are like, yes. like I've got this core group of seven, we're tight and we won't speak for eight months. We get together. It's like it's yeah. yesterday. But I look at the wider community of friends that I've, that I've had over the years. I'm like, wow, I've been a really shit friend. Yes. Like I've been a real, and I've like kind of got to the point where it's like, well, okay, whether I get you know married again or not, that's that's irre- irrelevant. Right now, I'm looking at, am I happy where I am right now? If I was to look back in ten years from now and go, am I completely satisfied? If my life kept on going this trajectory, I'd be like, I don't know if I would be. Yes, I totally understand. All the money in the world, or, or access to to do everything, but I'm like, what is it worth if you can, if you look around yourself and you haven't got those relationships? So do you ever sit there and think? Shit, maybe at some point I need to may- maybe reprioritize and look at different areas of my life. Because yeah. I'm going to assume you're not just sacrificing the areas of an intimate relationship. You've even mentioned yourself there are some social factors. Absolutely. Things you don't I actually, to. funny you should say that. I This New Year's Eve, I went um, back to my gorgeous girlfriends in Melbourne, who are my, they're my rocks. And I apologized to them. Wow. And I said, and, that, and it's interesting that we're having this conversation. I said to them, I'm so sorry. I've been so absent, so vacant. I would never go for dinner. I'd, I'll pop in for a drink after because, you know, I wanted to save that money so I can buy a laptop or I can buy. Everything was completely dedicated towards this business. And so I turned around and I apologized. And they said, you just need to enjoy your life. You just need to enjoy your money. And they just, and at that moment I breathed out and I said, something has got to change because, it is, it can be lonely. Yes, you're creating an amazing thing that you're proud of, but when you go home and there's no puppy cat. <laughs> Goldfish. <laughs> Goldfish. <laughs> Boyfriend, Because girlfriend. you don't have the yeah. time yeah. or your interests are dedicated completely to, you know, you're hiding behind a laptop and a keyboard. You kind of go, oh, there's got to be something more. There's got to be another layer. Because if you have those ama- amazing relationships in place, if you have an amazing partner, which is what I've worked out, you know, the, uh, the hard way or the long way, um, through self-reflection, you kind of go, they could stimulate better business. They could Mm. make me be a better person, a better boss. They can teach me some things that I don't know how to apply being solo. You know, it's interesting you should say that. Have you ever heard or read the book Think and Grow Rich? I have. Napoleon Hill. Yes. So in the early 1900s, through a relationship he had with um, the steel magnate at the time who was the wealthiest person in the world at that time, Dear God, his name has escaped me. Who was the uh, metal merchant? Uh, Carnegie. Um, not uh, not Andrew. Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie. Google it for me, Timmy. Anyway, Napoleon Hill got access to the 500 wealthiest people in the world at that time. And he spent 27 years interviewing every single one of them. And what he was looking for was characteristics and traits that they all shared. And at the end of 27 years of research, he published this book that had characterized 13 traits that every single one of them had. And trait number 11 was uh, the power of sex transmutation. And what he discovered was every single – and they were all men at the time, so I, I, yeah, excuse sure. me, but the, it, does, it does cross over. He said all of them had incredibly high sex drives. But what they Ambitious. Had, what they had done is they had learned to channel the sexual energy onto things other than the fantasy, the act, or the simulation itself. So they had this charge. I don't know if you're familiar with Tantra at all or, or even any form of yoga. What they do is they learn how to circulate the energy in their body and they use that energy that is stimulated wow. through sexual arousal to not be expressed in the form of sex but to be expressed in the form of a visualization to manifestation, to create. 
And I was like, holy shit, these dudes worked it out and they didn't even know it. They were actually using sexual energy and then rather than expressing it in the form of, you know, necessarily always an intimate union, they were expressing it into their work. They were expressing it into so their business. So this was a case study? Did they- this was a case study of 500 of the wealthiest people in the world. And they volunteered, men volunteered to do this. They, they shared it. They didn't <laughs> wow. give all the names of all the 500 okay. men that were involved. But what I discovered was, it, it echoes exactly what you're saying, is when we, when, they, when we bounce off someone that creates charge, that charge makes us want to be better. Yes. That charge makes us want to go and, you know, whether it's bring home, you know, a basket full of vegetables so that we can feed our family or bring home, you know, uh, a 42-foot yacht for our, you know, for our significant other, it creates that charge and that desire to go out and bring something back for that person. Absolutely. And so I agree with what you're saying. There's a lot of merit in, in finding the right relationship that enables you to be a better boss, be a better leader, be a better friend. And for so long it was just about me just sitting behind a laptop and a monitor and just making – and, you know, spending 12 – 12 hours a day because I feared that if I would spend less than that, even though I wasn't being productive, if I didn't put everything into it and the business failed and I and I didn't use that hour to do something, to work on the business, then that guilt was just so overpowering. Yeah. And that's a ridiculous way to operate. It's a ridiculous way to live your life in silo because you want to create an empire. I mean, you can mm. create an empire with someone holding your hand. Yeah. Do you ever see yourself having kids? Oh, <laughs> I'm finding all wow. the buttons. No puppies, no goldfish, I no cats. Oh, goodness. Good question. I don't. I don't think I do. Yeah, right. Um, I would, if my partner wanted to have a child, I would absolutely want to carry his child. Right. Do I desperately need to have a child? No, I okay. don't. And and um, and I've I'm comfortable with that. You know, and and to well, be. Well, sounds like you know yourself well enough to be comfortable with that. I think that if I start on this journey of, you know, I need to have a baby. I'm 37, 38, 37. Um, <laughs> then that's that's I'm 37. Then that's really painful, and that's an energy that I can't control. I don't mm. want to have a child by myself. I've done everything, or I've done a lot of things in my life by myself, and having a child, raising a child by myself, is not something that I'm. Totally I'm understand. volunteering yeah. to do. Um, but if I meet someone and he wants to have a child, then I'm happy to have you that discussion. I get the sense you're quite a fiercely independent woman. <laughs> Not by choice. <laughs> like uh, They made me be independent. <laughs> I was forced into it. I'm fiercely independent. Um, what do you mean not by choice? You know. No, I don't. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. I've always been fiercely independent. Right. Um, I've always, you know... Do you find it hard to depend on others? Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, my team now, having said that, my team at work, I 100% trust them um, and I rely on them and I depend on them to get the work done and, and because I have that trust and that But it culture, took you a while to get there, didn't it? Because I've got the right people around me. Yeah. I didn't before. I really, I did not trust right. them. Do I trust in other people? There are certain people I do trust, but you know what? A lot of the times I don't ask for help. I don't reach for counsel. I don't ask for advice. I don't put myself in those positions because I'm, I fear them failing me. Mm. It's because I'm fiercely loyal and I've learnt along the way that a, some people aren't and that hurts when mm. they don't love me the way that I expect them to love me but maybe they just don't want to. And so I don't, I've don't. i stopped choosing to do that which is probably not the right way to be. Right? Well, it, it comes down to what makes you happy I guess at the end of the day. But does it make me happy? You know, I want to be surrounded. I've got – I'm. I'm my good friends and my family I absolutely depend on. Yeah. Um, 
so when I go home to Melbourne, I can breathe out and and sleep and relax. When I'm in Sydney and you are running a business, you've, you know. But you live in Sydney most of the time. I live in Sydney. Yeah. Mm. We need to find a way to create that in Sydney for you. Yes. Because imagine if you can sleep in Sydney where you live. Yeah. Oh, no, no. You know what I mean. Like <laughs> I know it's what just, you mean. It's just nice I, being home because you I totally get it. So I'm like that when up. I go to Byron Bay or yeah. you know, when I go on a holiday. It's the opportunity to just breathe out. Exhale and go, okay, I can just slow down and stop for a moment. Yes. But then I started asking myself this question, like how do I actually how do I actually create that mindset and that in, that frame without having to go on a holiday to get there? Correct. And uh, it's just work in progress. So I'm still working on it. Yeah, let me know how you I'll go. Let, I'll let you know. I'll write okay. a book. Oh, no, I won't. I, mean, there's, there's, I won't even go there. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, well, there's a few. Um, can I come back to you on that? Can I choose one? <laughs> Good one. Can I, get, can I just get access to Google first? I'll, I'll just no, prefer to Google it. No, 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 no. <laughs> Theodore <laughs> Roosevelt. <laughs> Probably, you know, you know, no, actually my best and I and I um, stick by this every day is don't chase money, chase opportunity. Mm. Money will always come if you're good at what you do, if you know your craft, if you're a good business leader, if you've got integrity in business, money will always follow. Chase the opportunity. So what's next for, for Sarah? So for Sarah or for the business? For you. Like where do you see yourself going? Like what's next for you, for the business, for the brand? Yeah, so definitely I'm concentrating still on Piccolo PR. That's my that's my first love yeah. um, in business. And Shook Communications is is obviously uh, – we're growing that. We're evolving that. We're getting straight into the cannabis space. We're speaking to um, local and international people who are aligned to the cannabis sector um, and really trying to – cause a movement or getting the front line of those conversations. Fantastic. Well, I would love to be involved in any way I can with that. So if you Dang. ever need a perspective or an investor in that space, I'm, yeah, I'm certainly, yeah, I'm love very bullish help. on that area. So if people want to find out more about uh, Sarah Sitchi, yes. please tell me about it right that Sitchi. time. Sitchi. 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 Uh, where can they find you? Uh, Instagram. Yeah. Uh, PicoloPR.com.au. Yep. And, oh, just give me a buzz. Give her a buzz. Yeah. <laughs> you do some, you'll do lunch and air kisses, oh. <laughs> meet and greets. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Unstoppable and this has been Sarah Sitchi. Thank you so much for being on Thank Unstoppable. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm sorry about the weather. Oh. <laughs> Here I was thinking you were just, I think it, I thought it was me, but uh, apparently this room is too so hot. It is so warm. I'm sorry Well, i just like to tell everyone the room is actually really cool. It is not. It is really oh. I, very cool. I'm actually a little bit chilly, um, but She's that's lying. the effect we have. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Unstoppable. Thank you for this having me. This has been me. Sarah. Thank, Thank you. you so much. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor. Don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. Would love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray.